Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey and a very special guest and past professor, John Ouijan. In today's podcast, we will be discussing challenges and opportunities of education in the MEP field. So this is, a, to me, a very exciting conversation because we have with us two very smart and talented individuals, and they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. So my professor, John Ouijan, is a professor, obviously. And then uh, Mark Sankey, he's a, a great educator in industry. And this will be a great conversation because we'll be able to get really both sides of the discussion along with what is important for that transition into industry. Obviously, that is, as a college educator, the goal to make that a pretty smooth, seamless transition into industry. And being on the industry side, we want to be able to have new employees coming out of college be able to, as uh, as my past college uh, slogan was, hit the ground running. So I think this will be just, like I said, a great conversation to bring that all together and see maybe where some gaps are and what can be changed or done to make things better. And hopefully for our listeners, you know, we've all been through this transition. Uh, if you're in it now, or if you've done it 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you know, something to talk about and remember. With that being said, I'll let, I know you've guys, you, you guys know who Mark and I are. So I'll let John kind of give a little bit of background to himself. So John, take it away. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Clayton. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys today. So in terms of my background, I have a, all my degrees are in mechanical engineering. I did the, my bachelor's and master's at RET. And uh, then I went into industry for a while and pursued my PhD at University of Tennessee. So through my master's, PhD, and industry work, I was involved with fuel cells development, hydrogen cars, and there's a lot that goes on with that. And I was focused on heat and mass transfer inside the fuel cell system. So all my research and development work in industry was mainly related to that. About eight years ago, uh, GM was transitioning their their fuel cell program in Michigan, and we were originally located in Rochester. So it was tough to depart GM, but I really didn't want to move to Michigan. So there's an opportunity at Alfred State, uh, SUNY College in Alfred, New York, to, to teach. So I, I jumped on it and started teaching thermal fluids classes, so things like heat transfer, fluid mechanics, thermodynamics. We have a building energy systems elective that I teach there, and I've been at that ever since. I continued doing various forms of research in that role, certainly fuel cells. We have a lot of test equipment and we've built a lab to do that. I branched out to, and uh, a big part of our, my research program is related to compressorless cooling systems, mainly focused on the mass exchanger that is sort of in, in its infancy for potentially commercial systems that would would use these membrane heat pump architectures. So we've looked at we've looked at that small scale and we've been scaling it up and trying to figure out what the system looks like and the overall efficiency. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And then uh, for our listeners, if you guys are interested, it's that's phase innovations, right? So they could uh, check that out online, right? It's kind of neat. There's uh, I think we got four former students of Alfred State that work at Phase Innovations. They they started the company. I, I help out where I can, um, right? But I'm more of a more of a consultant to the work they're doing. So they took mm -hmm. some of the work that we were doing in the lab and they got 
they got some funding to to pursue the fundamentals of the design work as well as the way the materials function in the system and what's neat about it is those students uh, are they they set up their offices in Rochester and they're using that as an opportunity to do graduate research so they left Alfred State and now they're either finished with graduate programs at RIT or um, currently in graduate programs at RIT so yeah that's really cool and it, it's interesting because I I was able to kind of see firsthand that start while I was in college as well. And, uh, you know, in the, in our, my industry out of school, it, it lines up pretty well with the, what we do in the technology. So it's really interesting. Just if, you know, our listeners are interested, check out their website, phaseinnovations.com. <laughs> if I remember that correctly. And, uh, I think, I think that's it Clayton, but yep. you know, we're constantly, we're constantly <laughs> revising the website based on how we're trying to get funding. So yeah, you know, if someone, if someone's interested, you know, they can reach out to me directly. I'm, I'm on the Alfred state website and I'll, I'll point them, point them in the right direction. Really cool technology to check into, but um, I guess moving on with the podcast then. So thank you for the background. Uh, I think it's really, it's valuable and interesting as a, being an educator, as a professor in college that you, you transitioned from industry to college. And I don't know if that is a common occurrence. I mean, it seems like a lot of my past professors did that. And I think it helps so much in the education field to be able to say, hey, this is what it's like out in the real world. You know, we know we've done it. I guess before we dive into the college part of the discussion, what what made you decide to start teaching? Well, I, you know, one of my roles at General Motors was um, I ran contracts. So, you know, we, we were our goal was to get a fuel cell system into a car as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot of sort of fundamental things that you have to dig into to do that. You know, a good example is there's these porous layers in the fuel cells. And what does that porous layer need to look like? How do you model how, you know, a two phase mixture moves through that porous layer? And in that case, we, we would reach out to universities and say, hey, listen, are you interested in doing this research? We'll, we'll do a subcontract to you. And, right. um, so, and I ran a few of those subcontracts. So I had the, this sort of unique opportunity to work with these educators at some, what we would consider pretty prestigious schools. And I was just sort of envious of their role. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like they, had all these, they had all these undergrad and graduate students that- yep we're so committed to, to, to these projects. And I don't know, I just, I saw it as a good opportunity to be a better mentor and just shift the, just shift my career focus. So. Well, I'm glad you did. It was uh, awesome going through college with you as a professor. <laughs> so got me started on the track. I am, I remember HVAC basics class sophomore year <laughs> and <laughs> look at me now. So it was a great start. Glad we could help. Yeah, a huge help, you know. So with that being said, I guess we can start at the college part of the education in the in the MEP field discussion. And like I said, I know I took an HVAC basics class and you know you have thermodynamics, heat transfer, um, you know, all those classes, but like I don't know how I want to gear the question of the conversation, but it's a maybe a very very dumb question what what's the overall goal of 
you know, a college educator to prepare for the MEP field? Well, first off, I'd say, you know, there's no dumb questions and that's sort of important. Um, <laughs> you know, like, you know, if you look at it from like the 10,000 foot level, like we know we need to teach these fundamentals, but you know, we're starting out with students that will say no, nothing about it. Right. Coming out of high school, you don't know much in the MEP field. Right. Where do we want to get them? And what do we need to teach them to build that foundation and have them prepared for industry? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm just kidding about, but seriously, as, as, as I know, educator, like questions are so hard to come by. So, yeah. you know, that's why you always hear professors and teachers saying there's no dumb questions because you're desperate for questions. All right. Um, it, it, it's really the best way to communicate with students. And, you know, I, in terms of, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, uh, you're right. Even in industry for myself, you know, I used to be not scared to ask questions, but I'd be like, is that a dumb question? Should I know this? I just, now I'll just ask anything. I don't care if they're like, you know, whatever, ask the question. And it, it's been very insightful. So I agree. Yeah. Anybody it's so listening. hard to, when a student does, I mean, some questions, they are uh, dumb, but they were already answered to somebody yes. paying attention. But I work so hard not to embarrass anyone for, you know, ever inquiring because yeah. that, that um, that level of comfort, I think it's hard to come by. So, but you know, in terms of MEP field, if you look through most mechanical engineering or mechanical engineering technology curricula, there's there's likely no electives that focus on the MEP field. So at schools of technology like Alfred State, sort of you know what we're trying to graduate ES level engineers that are most likely going to go right into the workforce. Right. If you design our course schedule in such a way that if they did want to go on to a master's degree, they wouldn't have any issue with that. But certainly when we choose our electives that we're going to teach with limited resources of faculty, we, we survey where the jobs are and we try to try to make sure those electives align with where the jobs that we expect our students to be applying for. So certainly MEP is obvious an obvious elective that we should offer mm -hmm. but i think it's i think it's somewhat rare in in our program we actually um only offer two electives in that in that space it's either uh programming for cam or the building energy systems class which you're calling we call it hvac systems but it's less focused on the actual equipment and more the design so did i it's an I'm trying to think, did I take that class? Is that new? Is that? No, it, it was the same elective, but it's, it's okay. evolved. It evolves every year based on sort of, um, you know, what, what the industry trends are. We make sure that, I mean, there's some fundamentals about the course. We, we want every student, well, I designed the course. So I should say I want every student <laughs> to um, walk, walk out of there knowing how to calculate a heat load, how to calculate yes. a cooling load. I worry so much that, you know, I could just teach all that stuff by point and click in a program like eQuest. But from my experience in industry, it's the, the old saying garbage in equals garbage out. Mm -hmm. Really, if you can't step away from one of these calculations and do it by hand and know how to simplify it so you get a ballpark answer, um, you're not really you're not doing the full engineering exercise. So we, we learn how to calculate all that stuff by hand. And of course, psychometrics, that's a little tricky for a second year student. 
Um, a lot of them haven't had thermodynamics yet. Mm-hmm. So we take our time with that and make sure that not just to understand the uh, psychometric chart, but also be able to use it for practical analysis and have some intuition for, you know, if I move from this point to this point, what physically happened to the, the conditions there. Yes. That was a, that was a big part of my CEM exam, actually psychometric chart and saying, if you went from point one to point two, what happened point, you know, it, that was huge. Yeah. And it's such a, it's such a neat chart because it, it pulls together so many, you know, so many equations all in the one spot. Oh yeah. And Clayton will attest, we just finished a project where we were on a clean room and the engineer designed the unit for a specific discharge air temperature and the conditions we made, we, we were maintaining in the clean environment could not be physically maintained based on the discharge set point that they had designed to. And when I had to pull out the psych chart and say, look, here's the dew point leaving the unit. Here's what the dew point in the room. If the dew point in the room is lower, the, our requirement is lower than the discharge uh, dew point, we have a problem. We have to lower the discharge air temperature. But it's, as you said, there's just not a lot of, I mean, I use the psych, I have the psych chart, probably four copies within arm's reach right now. I mean, every day. Yeah, I I try to, I try to integrate that. That's actually one of the first topics. And every time we're talking about a different piece of equipment or a different process, we always go back to psych chart and draw it on the psych chart. What's, what's going to, and I'll just make up numbers. This is your outside air condition. This is your set point. And but just to make sure everybody at least has the opportunity to get that intuition and get that confidence that it's not as complicated as it looks. So I'm very well, I think redundant you need to be. with that in the class. Yeah, I think it, I think it annoys some of the, some of the students that get it right away, but not just teaching to those students. You want to try to pull up everybody. So. Absolutely. So once we get through those fun, and then there's a lot of fluid mechanics, fundamentals that go in there, you know, just solving and, the energy equation for, you know, the Mm -hmm. uh, sprinkler system and things like that. So we get, we get to a point that my goal at the end of the class is you could, you could design an entire um, MEP. Well, the E, the E part, we don't get too much into the electrical side of it, but um, certainly the mechanical and all the, all the plumbing that goes along with it. They, they walk out of there for any building you know, it gets pretty complicated, but they should be able to to do all the hand calculations. And I also introduced the software that they would use to to do it at a higher level. So perfect. And then we we have a lab component there, and I I'm always switching that lab component around. Um, I thought I thought last term we did something kind of cool. I I applied for a little bit of funding. It, mm-hmm. It's hard to get big chunks of money, um, but. Uh, I think I got like 500 bucks and I bought, I bought uh, 12 of each of, of, of these things. I, yep. I, like Arduino microcontrollers. And then on Amazon, I found this home sensor kit and it had like gas sensors and, you know, white sensors that had servo motor. Uh, yep. I, you know, I forget all the, it, it had like 15 different things in it. And then we, we developed a home or building automation system with just that equipment. So, and we built it, we built the system sort of step by step. So at first was using the temperature and RH sensor to turn on. I bought these little heat pumps. They were um, 
thermoelectric heat pump. So, you know, the first first lab was using a set point and a couple of relays to turn that heat pump on and off. And as we went through the semester, we just sort of added things to this, you know, like a water sensor and a solenoid to turn off water mm -hmm. if you sense, you know, water on the ground. And and then we, after a <laughs> while, I had to start getting pretty creative. So there, uh, we used a photo sensor and a stepper motor. And the, it was basically if, if the sun was coming through the windows, the stepper motor would close blinds. Now, keep in mind, we're not physically closing blinds, but we have all right. the control systems in place. And the actual, you know, a mock-up of the 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 actual well, the trim and respond to do it. Yeah, and I mean, it was it was. I'd say we had a high degree of success. It was, the students, they they hate if they've never done any mm -hmm. programming before. They don't like it, and they they think that uh, you know this is something that only electrical or computer types do. But I'm always I'm always telling them that you know mechanical engineers yep. are sort of the, it's the broadest field and you're going to touch all of these if you don't if you don't have the confidence that you can wire up a sensor and develop a control system you know that it's going to limit you as a as a professional so you know i just keep i just keep banging that drum and eventually they figure out how to do it hey that's good i, I mean mark that's got to be music to your ears though i mean for like the industry we're in that's huge i think well, it really is, especially as you get into commissioning projects, not only do you, you need to know how it should be done, and you also need to be able to draw a distinction as to whether it's done correctly and operate correctly or not. So it's not only just, can I do that? Sure, I can if I have to. But at the same time, if someone's done it wrong, you can identify where it's wrong in the program. Uh, and and it, you know, certainly not right out of school, but within a short period of time, be able to offer diagnoses or uh, recommendation to make it operate correctly. Yeah. And I think that's a confidence thing too. Like, it is. you know, get fresh out of school, say I saw, you know, a, a, a programmer in commissioning doing something. And I was like, you know, you have a thought about it. You're not so inclined maybe to say, what about this when you're, you know, six months out of school and this guy's 20 years in industry, but as you, as you get more involved in it and confident with it, yeah, why the hell not? And I don't know. I think I've made some pretty good suggestions over the years, months, whatever that, sure. right. you know, they improved it. So yeah, the hands-on and confidence is huge in, and it's an individual thing as well, but just to continuously be involved in it, you know, keep pushing the Arduino stuff and the hands-on programming and all that. So you kind of force the confidence in a way. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I think it, it's, it's maybe it, confidence is definitely key, but it's, it's more the exposure. I, yeah. I, I recall when I started at one of the co-ops I did while I was at RIT undergrad, just a, a supervisor just was like, wire up that, that pressure sensor and, you know, see if you can control. It was a complicated thing, but, and when it, I had never done it before, I had never, never wired up anything and I've never, yeah. I've never, you know, got into a PLC. And yep. I just remember it being so intimidating. And when I said, I don't know how to do that. As <laughs> a, he's a good mentor. He's like, well, you're here to figure that out. <laughs> We're paying you. So, um, see how much you can get, see how far you can get before you start asking me questions. And 
you know, it was it was a really good experience because I I did I figured it out and yep. after that I I felt like any time I came up against something like that it's like well I figured it out once mm-hmm. I, I know I can do it again I may not remember much from it but the second time I was a lot faster and third time <laughs> yeah that's how you make it stick though when you have to figure it out you know when somebody tells you how to do it it's doesn't stick as much for anything I don't know it's a little bit of the the deep end mentality yeah and that's what I like about that 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 lab series I was talking about because you know I have other systems in the lab I got a I got a really nice air handler demonstration unit that we built a few years ago and basically we just took uh, you know a system and we put it in the lab and opened up all of the the, the entire program is open for students to manipulate, but yeah. makes such a mess out of it that it's, and it's not as, in, it's a Siemens uh, workstation and it's not as easy as you'd think for me to make it work correctly again. And, you know, so I'm sort of over their shoulder the whole time. Mm-hmm. They, I, I can't let them mess it up too bad. Right. But with the Arduino stuff, like, you know, yes, yeah, some sensors got fried and some Arduino boards stopped working, but you know, it's only a few bucks and mm-hmm. it's not a big deal. Yep. And really what they're doing, even though it's not in the right programming language and the sensors aren't the same as they would use in industry, you know, as a whole, it's very similar. It absolutely is. The the strategies would be the same, you know, doing closed loop temperature control, pretty simple stuff, but that's all air handlers are, is just a combination of closed loop controls. That took some time to not a lot of time, but that was another thing that like was eye-opening, I guess, you know, transitioning from college is like, you know, open loop, closed loop. Why is in the HVAC industry, MEP industry, why is this, you know, what is the measured variable, control variable, controller output? You know, how does that all go together in the closed loop control? Um, that was definitely something that you kind of had to be, at least for me, and immersed in pretty heavily, not heavily, but you had to be a, a big part of it to have it finally click. Once it did, it was like, oh yeah, this, is, this makes sense. Yeah, and I, I recall when I took control systems, you know, PID control was just this, it was this haze. I, I was so confused in what <laughs> I was doing. And then I got into industry and actually, you know, had to set something up. And I was working with a tech and he's like, what are you doing? All these calculations, it's all right here. You know, <laughs> what are you doing with the D? You don't need a D. <laughs> so... <laughs> But you're right, and and John, I'm old enough that when I started in industry, pneumatic controls were the that was it. So you know you had to calculate the sensitivity and the offset and the uh, based on the spring range of your device. And you know it was my first couple months. It was pure voodoo. You know where how are these guys doing this? I can't figure it out. And then uh, you know finally it started to come together. And I, I guess if you can set up a pneumatic PID controller, you could set up just about anything because the certainly the electronics is so much faster, better, uh, flexible, all those things. But it was like you said, the it was not a, it was a haze. It was a voodoo haze <laughs> for me. <laughs> and I feel like, but that's in a way, not how it should be, but that is part of the transition to industry. You know, you can't in, in college as an educator, teach all of that to everybody because 10% might only use it or whatever percent. So I get where the, you know, you need to function or you need to focus on the 
fundamentals, right? And I thought that was another, it'd be a good conversation point, especially for you two guys is like in college, you know, Q equals MCP Delta T. I have never used that outside of college, at least in my industry, but you need to teach that part of it to have that understanding. You know, now I use 500 GPM Delta T, you know, I, I don't know, John, like my question for you, I'll let you dive into this is like, there's a lot of seemingly industry shortcuts, right? If you want to call them that, but we never, and maybe I don't want, maybe I don't want to say never, maybe I didn't remember. Yeah, don't say that. Right. <laughs> but it seemed like we focused more on the, the, the very, the theory of it, right? I don't know. Just explain about that a little bit. <laughs> well, I would, yeah, I agree with Mark, but don't say never. That might've been, that lecture might've been a day after you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Missed that one, I guess. Yeah, no, I see that in, in the MEP course when it prints like the 500 times so that's just a conversion mm -hmm. factor right yep times gpm when i introduce that equation i make sure i show where that 500 came from right right you know? and uh, you and you have to know that i get that yeah and i i also you know i i this is one of the struggles with modern technology because we're teaching to get the fundamentals out there you're teaching based on things that you know, tools that would engineer things five generations ago, right? Mm -hmm. But the fun, you know, but the what's the current generation is built off of that foundation. So as much as I'd like to dive right into some of the latest technologies and show all these cool materials and you know talk about how control systems have evolved and all that stuff, you're not getting that foundation. And the challenge is, you know, how do you get from you know the the starting point? where you design systems, you know, that are pretty crude to the, the type of engineering projects that we are doing today. And I don't really have the answer for that, but I, I do stick to that. If I can, if I can give students on a first principles basis, an intuition for, you know, obviously we have to use the equations, but I, I focus more on, you know, let's look for things that are nonlinear, you know? So like, I don't know, let me think of some drag. There's a, there's a velocity squared term in that. Yeah. So that makes okay. a big, that's a big difference. And I try to, I try to make them think like, you know, when you see a, a squared term in an equation, like, you know, just put a little asterisk by that in your brain, you know, <laughs> and that, that I try to build an intuition based on the, the equations, but also, practical examples you know so that's huge about drag you know that's why we care a lot about the way a shape of a plane yeah. is versus the shape of a you know a, a half ton truck right which you know <laughs> or a, so, you know I, I don't know i, yeah, I no 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 i'm a good example but um well but for but, us the practical example is parallel pumping when you can run pumps in parallel you know uh reduce the powers a cube of the of the flow yeah so two pumps in parallel will flow the same amount of of uh working fluid as at 50 percent as one pump at 100 percent for much less horsepower yeah you, so you're right you reduce the power consumption by four by running two pumps at half the speed right and, and but yeah you're right that that's something that you know people if you don't have that sensibility like oh by cutting this RPM in half, I'm going to reduce the consumption by this much. Um, yeah, it's, you got to have that kind of sensibility. 
It's examples like that, you know, when you're talking about pumping power and how that relates to the energy equation and how decisions of the size of a pipe will, you know, sort of cascade over years in terms right. of how much energy it takes. I always point out examples like that. Now let's look at a practical problem where, you know, you want to reduce the amount of pumping power. What options do we have? And, uh, you know, go back to the equations and show them like, yeah, if this runs at 50% of its flow rate, um, you know, this, this is how it impacts the energy balance in the system. Hey, here's a good practical problem. Mark, I think you'll be able to elaborate on this if you want, <laughs> but I don't know, probably a year out of college. You remember we had the conversation about, um, the pig, the sewer pig. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, as part of the, I'm assuming the, the patent application, we needed some tangible numbers identifying energy savings by pigging right. a pipe. So, right. you know, if we had, I don't know, I don't even know how long, you know, a, I don't know, however many miles of pipe we had to calculate, we had to calculate that. And I went straight into the fluid dynamics book, you know, Reynolds number, Nusselt number, what is the coefficient of, um, the whatever friction coefficient on rusty pipe. I mean, that was like, that was pure directly out of the fluid dynamics book. So it's right. important to understand the application of these calculations and theories because there's a perfect real life example of it. You're right. Yeah, I agree. And it, I, I look at it. I remember one time I was actually, I was working on a patent as well and had a great concept. I thought, and I talked to a senior engineer. This was early on in my career. And he's like, well, just calculate. Just, why don't you just calculate it? <laughs> you know? And I, I was really embarrassed that I didn't just pull out my book and calculate it. Because yeah. I, I should have. It was, and the fundamentals are sort of step one. Yep. And the, I think the professors that are working hard for students will go the extra mile to to relate it to practical problems that a diverse group of students can relate to i grew up working on dirt bikes so i can relate anything to a dirt bike motor yeah but like you know i i i realize that everybody hasn't had that experience so i i try to survey in a lot of different examples of mm -hmm. mechanical engineering to 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 relate the fundamental equations to things that other people would relate to. So, but, you know, beyond that, I, I'd say that that's, that's not the key focus of classes to me. What it is, what, what I really want students to walk away from is saying like, for instance, you, you talk about calculating a pressure loss in a pipe. I want them to walk away, maybe not feeling like they can do it two years from now when they haven't thought about it, but I want them to, to feel like I did this once. Yeah. And, you know, I know I was successful at it, so I can do it again. And so I don't, I don't focus too much on memorization and, mm -hmm. um, you know, these gotcha questions because they, they were just, as I recall them, they were, they were just in the way of my, my learning journey, right? And so when I have exams and, and quizzes and things, like I let the students use any resource they want, you know, exam, you can bring a sheet of paper, whatever you want to put on it. Because why put the pressure of all this memorization on, on this already complicated subject? Like, 
the, the world is resource rich. Yeah, you're right. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And if they can walk away with that confidence, that's the, that's a key to, you know, the, the learning outcomes. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, we have these in tech in engineering technology, we have all this opportunity in lab and I try to keep that pretty dynamic too. Yep. And the trick though with that is a lot of our students come in saying, I, I want to be hands-on and you know, they picture that as working on things. But from my experience in the engineering field, working on things is the easy part. It, you know, it's, it's understanding the tools for design analysis, quality control, manufacturing. So I, I, I spend about half the time with hands-on typical lab activities yeah. and, you know, and I'm talking about classes like fluid mechanics. And then the rest of the time I try to introduce programs that will enable you to, because we solve all the equations one dimensionally. Yeah. I'm always beating on the assumptions. Yeah. You understand that you just assume that density is constant, right? Yeah. Everybody gets what that means. <laughs> yeah, probably Clayton probably remembers me saying that. that yeah. Yeah. Like, do you understand what steady state means? <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no, there's no time variable in this equation. Yep. Can anybody name something that's really steady state? <laughs> so, um, you know, and then I like to, in the lab, introduce CFD for fluid mechanics. Um, and sometimes for, for the MEP class, because, you know, now you're using the equations in their true form. You only know if the answer is right if you can do them one dimensionally and make an approximation. Right. But you know, to really design something in the modern world, we're in a we're in a three dimensional time dependent space. So, mm. I guess that's hands on. But yeah. It's not hands on the way the students walk into school thinking it's going to be hands on. That's right. But I think it it's kind of how it has to be, though. I don't know. I mean, you. You're doing, I think you did like when I got out of college going into industry, I think what everything I learned, you know, at Alfred and from you guys really set me up for success. And I don't know, Mark, I guess I'll let you, I know you've been a little quiet. I'll let you dive into, you know, maybe what, what you see, uh, coming out of college before, even for myself or anybody, you know, any past employees or what have you, like transitionally, like what, where, where you start with somebody and where you need to get them. You know, are you starting at a the right point? I don't know. You know, like you're, well, you're the second it, half of this conversation. But but for me, and, and you know, as a manager, what do I expect from new hires out of college? I mean, above all, and maybe it's not what they learn in college. You know, the innate curiosity and uh, wanting to learn how things work, why they work what they do that's huge you just um, described every buddy's first day what like <laughs> tell me about yourself clayton <laughs> i like i like tearing apart things and figuring out what <laughs> yeah i mean i'm 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 just a uh i'm the guy that is going down the road and you know nowadays you see the commercials that they have the fuel going into the car into the combustion chamber and the pistons going up and down yeah when i'm driving down the road i visualize all that in my car so yeah i hear something okay that's what is that rotational noise is that ignition noise is that what i mean it, it basically is i need to feel like i'm connected to every part of the 
equipment and and especially when you know we have new hires you know if i don't get a sense you know, this is recruitment and selection selection not necessarily new hires but if i don't get the sense that they're passionate about how things work why they work how can we be how can we look at continuous improvement then they're they won't be a good fit because my job is as a manager is to basically bring in people that I know will have a ongoing passion for our business. Um, and, and why do we train so intensively? Well, we're a small business, so we don't have really time to waste money to waste, letting new hires learn at you know, uh, their own pace or, you know, do exclusively online training. And I don't think those forums really translate as effectively to the real world as, being engaged in projects as their knowledge base and skill set allows. Because once once you can start pushing that envelope of here's what you know versus here's what you need to know, uh, people will grow into it very quickly. And I think, you know, from my end, we look at MEP design, all, all the mathematics is great. I, I'm also of the opinion that the general knowledge of equipment and and the financials constructability operability maintainability are as important i mean i would rather have a, a relatively efficient readily constructible and operable design than a extremely efficient impossible to construct and inoperable maintainable uh system so you know all those those um, competing objectives. Sometimes everybody needs to be exposed to those, or certainly you know young engineers need to be exposed to those and integrate those with what the the customer wants and be able to converse, ask questions. So the, you know there's a lot to learn, obviously, but it's all about how do we take this knowledge base that we've developed and translate it into you know usability and, and applications in the in the real world yes <laughs> i i agree oh that was a long um a the, long monologue yeah that, mean, no no i just kind of got on a roll no you're on a roll it, I went. <laughs> it's good it's good um i'm trying to think about like where where uh, john has a response feel free to chime in i'm thinking i you know i i it's interesting for me i being from the area, having worked in the area, I have a reasonably large network of other engineers that are sort of scattered around companies. So whenever they ask me, they're, they're like, we're hiring entry-level engineers. Can you recommend anybody? It's rare that I recommend the student that was, you know, straight A's, um, unless that student was involved in, like, self-initiated projects. Because when I worked in the industry, you know, that ability to, to come in and say, you know, I, I can take the reins on this. I'm going to have some learning I got to do, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do this independently. You know, that's, uh, that's sort of cre key for an entry-level engineer. And so, you know, the, and I've seen it over the years working in watching students that graduate and what what degree of success they have is that the students that are just like you know what i want to build that baja car i got this idea for you know a new hvac system i want to try to build it and 
you know, I'm not recommending them based on their success. I'm recommending them based on the fact that they took some initiative and they're trying to apply the things they learned in school. And, uh, you know, because I just, I, I think there's, there's a select group of engineering students that really are not as into it as they should be and <laughs> make it tough for them when they, you know, when, when someone, it's really easy to get away with that in college because you're the one paying the money. But once it, once things get flipped and someone else is paying you to do something, if you, if you don't have that level of interest and, you know, that, that the willingness to take the things that you've learned and try to try to build on them, like Mark said there, it's, it's a struggle, I think, for a lot of new engineers. Man, so. If anybody's going to take anything away from this podcast, I hope it's that. Yeah, and I, I, I tell students that all the time. Yeah. You know, when, when they come in for advising, they're like, oh, man, you know, I'm getting B's and C's. What am I going to do? You know, I'm like, go, go, join, go join an engineering club. Build a robot, you know. Like, yeah. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. But do more. You know? <laughs> and. I would say too, from my experience, when RIT required co-ops and in, in the SUNY school, in the SUNY credit system, we have trouble putting that into our program. So, you know, our students have to take internships and that's completely voluntary in the summer. So I recommend that to our students a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, you know, the, the co-op experience was, um, I, I, I think that gave me an edge. And you can get that through internships if you're in a program that doesn't doesn't have a required co-op. But just early on, I was a little confused at what the engineering world was really like and yep. the degree of responsibility you had. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, in in those co-ops, I was really fortunate to. I never really had a bad mentor, and I've seen bad mentors as a as a practicing engineer, but. So I know how lucky I was that these people that had signed up to have a intern, they did it right. And it was really important for my development. You know, that's a really good point. And I, I was just gonna, going to ask that. And, it, and obviously, it's such a broad, broad spectrum. Um, but yeah, like you could, it could, to me, you could get the short end of the stick though. And, you know, say I take the initiative and maybe it's just a, personal thing and you, you have to see it and change it. But I imagine you could take the initiative to get an internship as an engineer and end up, I have no idea, you know, being extremely limited in responsibility and outlook too. So it does fall on educators and in industry to, to want to mentor young engineers as well. And it does help a lot. Yeah, that's a good point. RIT's program, you had to do several internships. Yeah. And, and that's good. The first internship I got, it's a neat internship. It was a company that was contracted by Electric Boat, and they were working on, I assume I'm allowed to talk about this. It was a long time ago. <laughs> they were working on this really neat concept for a submarine where you would switch out. It's based on its mission. It would have this trust system that would kind of, at the surface, you could pull out from for a rescue mission versus a wartime mission. You would just basically exchange these units inside the submarine so they had to had to be pretty strong because they held the submarine together when it was that you know when it was submerged right and you know i was running a program that would simulate explosions which sounds super cool but the way the way it was presented to me i really didn't understand what i was doing yeah you know, I, 
I was taking all these designs and I was putting boundary conditions on them and running this long simulation and then delivering results to another engineer. And, uh, you know, that was what they needed. Yes. You know, and they didn't have time to, to, to get into how this LS Dyna program really worked. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I went to the, I went to the supervisor and I was like, you know, this is fun and all, but I thought that I would get a little bit deeper into the, you know, sort of nuts and bolts of what I'm doing here. Right. Cause I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm just sort of, you know, I don't know, like a database. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he was nice. He, he's like, listen, you know, this is, this is where our contract is and we're really short staffed. But if you want to take an hour a day and look for the ultimate internship, you don't have to do this for your five terms here. You know, and he, he gave me some suggestions and that, that was really nice of him because I found that I, I, I got into this program at, Johnson Space Center where they did it right you know they they really like NASA works hard to to make sure that their interns are getting like sort of the full spectrum mm -hmm. of the experience they can offer on that campus so they have this great program that's just you know you, you start out in one unit there I started out in uh, like FEA analysis mm -hmm. And I finished up there in robotics. So, you know, I went back every term and I had all these, met all these great people. And so, you know, the quality of the internship that you're, what you mentioned before, it does play a critical role because if you, if you're going to get an internship and they're just going to have you, you know, grinding out some engineering process, but not really get you, get your teeth sunk into it. Yep. I can imagine that would be very discouraging to a future engineer. Yep. So, yeah. No, I just, I just thought it was definitely worth, you know, noting, obviously internships are important, but you know, it, and it, it takes uh, the, the, the foresight on both ends to say, you know, as a, as a educator in industry, I want, you know, to teach young engineers. And as a young engineer, you kind of want to, like, you were able to, you had the wherewithal to say, yeah, this isn't, this isn't what I want. This isn't what I expected. And you, you know, you did something about it. So it's a little give and take on both ends, I suppose. It is that. Mark, question for you. I guess, and John, you both can chime in. Like when I got into industry, the training was still, it was very structured. Like you are going to do this, 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 learn this, take this test. You know what I mean? Is that always the case? I think it was a huge help. Is you that, mean for me? Yeah, yeah. No. No, 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 no. Like you gave me like a very regimented training session, you know, or, you know, uh, well, and, I mean, for engineers that come to work with me, yes, it is. Yeah. It's all, always the same. Yes. So it's, it's basically what we call the HVAC basics, but it's, you know, pretty in depth. Very. Yeah. Um, I would say. And the, the CEM training and other training, just there, there's a lot, but the reason is, I mean, again, I go back to, this is a small business. I, we can't just hire somebody without expecting that down the road, there's a return on the, uh, the investment. So we need to build the productivity, build the experience as quickly as we can. And, and Clayton, you, you know, when you said back at, at the beginning of this podcast, uh, I feel I used to think, Oh, I don't want to ask a dumb question. I will tell you flat out. And you've been in plenty of meetings where project managers are, uh, twice your age and customers 
and maybe three times your age. <laughs> and you have the privilege of being able to ask anything you want because they look at you as well. I can explain this and it's valuable to take the time to explain this. Whereas if I ask the same question, it probably wouldn't be viewed the same way. They'd be like, yeah. oh, we have to find another company to work, <laughs> work for us. So I, I would never think, especially at this point in your career that you should you should always ask the question. Yeah, yeah. No, I, and it, I did it. You know, I grew into that pretty quickly, but it is a transition. It's you a, know what I mean? Yeah, but it's an advantage for you. And yeah. right now is the time when you should capitalize. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So thorough and structured training, I think if, if you expect, if, if any employer expects to get value out of new hires and let them know, here's the pace that we run at, mm -hmm. number one, and here's what we expect you to know, number two, then if you don't communicate that, then you have nobody to blame but yourself for poor results or whatever you may get circumstantially without having a, a structured training program. Yeah, and from my experience, I've, I've worked at General Motors for quite a while, and um, but I also worked for a couple of small companies along the way, and that's not always the case. There's a lot of times you get hired as a entry-level engineer and you just get thrown into the fire without a structured training program. And uh, I don't see any advantages to that. No. Uh, well, and I think if you look at it from the business perspective, if you give somebody the responsibility without a... and So the value to me, Clayton, in giving you structured training, and, and John, when he says structured... I mean, there would be a quiz at the, you know, a test at the yeah. end of every chapter um, so that I, I have some method to say, okay, he understands it. But my, my thought is that basically if as a company, you give someone the responsibility without affirmation that there is a knowledge base and skill set to be able to manage the uh, task associated with the responsibility, that's a huge risk. I mean, maybe they can afford to take that risk. I can't afford to take that risk. Mm -hmm. Well, I just, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. It allowed for so much, it allows for so much growth, I think. Uh, uh. Well, to, to do the training, but I mean, to John's point, there yeah, are companies yeah. that don't do the training. Yep. I, I can't see, uh, you know, having the risk is associated with not doing the training. Mm -hmm. Well, you did a little bit of both. Though. I mean, we did that. You say, think you're, you're of the, of the in the deep end philosophy as well a little bit well i agree but by and large if it was you know i don't mind if you put a little hole in the boat but i'm not going to let yeah. you have enough responsibility to sink yeah the boat. that's a whole different <laughs> yeah whole different issue so. no i don't disagree with that <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting too i think when i look back when i chose what college i went to i wasn't making that decision based on anything that I would make that decision based on today. I could agree with that. And I, I got lucky with the job at GM because they, they, they did have us, they worked hard to make sure that you had all sorts of resources available to get in there and understand um, the product that they were developing. And they made all these, they, that was a very unique place though. They had, they had 200 masters and PhD level scientists working there and they, this crew would 
they would do training sessions for their respective field of expertise. So they would let you soak that up as much as you wanted. There's no quizzes. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe one of them. There was, a, there was a German guy. I think he had quizzes. Yeah, he was rough. Um, but, you know, I, I say that because that was lucky. And what I've seen at other companies is sort of throw people right into the fire. Yeah. And I look at choosing my first job as I didn't ask any questions about that. You know, it was more like, I, I was just like, please hire me. I need a job, <laughs> you know? And you know, it, I, I wonder how many people are in that same boat where it's just like, I'll tell you anything to get this job. Whereas maybe you should be screening it a little bit. Cause at that point in your life, your, your financial security is probably you, you, you have the most flexibility to, to, to wait. And that first job that you pick, if you are thrown into the fire and you, maybe you're not quite ready for that, that could set your career in a trajectory that you never realize all the success that you could have. Yeah. You know, so I, I would absolutely agree with that just from personal, I don't know, personal experience and people, you know, friends, family, whatever. I mean, Generally, you get out of school, you want a job. You kind of know what you want to do, but you just want a job. And you, you want to get paid well. <laughs> but, you know, like goal number one is get a job and then ask questions later. It seems like, at least, that, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, no, I get, I, I, I've, I've been there. Yeah. I understand that. But what I'm saying now as somebody who's sort of been, you know, looked at this from a lot of different perspectives. There's two job offers on the table and one was 10 grand less, but they said, we're going to have you in training for a day a week versus the other job is just like, yeah, you know, you're going to figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) That that 10 grand that you lost might pay dividends down the road. Oh, by far. Hey, that's a, that's a great point. A little personal experience. I kind of did the same thing as a college student in internships too, though, you know, um, you work in whatever you want to call a, a heavy, heavier labor job, get getting paid pretty well. And the first internship I got was a pretty big pay cut in terms of, you know, here, whatever, 19, you know, working in the summertime. And I was considering not taking it. And my father was like, you got to take it. It doesn't matter about the pay right now matters about the experience and what you'll learn and what you'll see and yeah that you know that ten dollars an hour difference now means nothing based off you know compared to what i've learned from it so well that's true i mean i'll go back though and say okay there's risk on the employer side too because we make some perhaps gross assumptions about what uh the skill sets or the knowledge base is for uh, engineers getting out of school. So I hired a engineer from a big university, graduated number one in the mechanical engineering class, right? Number one in the ME class, yeah. not number mm-hmm. one. Class. Okay. That's impressive. Yeah. So yeah, she came to work for me. She wanted to be a project manager. I said, no, you have to go through training first and be uh, in project management. You're going to do basically a month. In the, and at that time, I had a controls business that later. Uh, I sold. So you'll do a month in the panel shop, you build some panels, you'll do um, a month in the design shop, you'll do a month with the programmers. And and so by the end of six months, 
assuming we can get you through this rotation, then you'd be ready to do some project management. And we'll start you off small projects, okay? So second week on the job, I'm on the phone and uh, the truck came in and had all kinds of fasteners. You know, we had a big fastener bins that had all the connectors and stuff. And uh, so I said, well, I'm on the phone, just take care of it, put the stuff away. So uh, I'm on the phone, I had just gotten off, I hear this crash in the panel shop and she had knocked over a bunch of bins of uh, screws, bolts, nuts, pop rivets, the whole thing, all mixed up on the floor. I said, well, you're just gonna have to sort them out, put them in the right bins. And she, now we have, she's in tears. And she said, I don't know what any of these are. I said, what do you mean? I said, I don't, I don't know what any of these are. I said, well, what's this? And I held up a self-tapping screw. I don't know. I mean, that's a bad day, John. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know a bolt from a nut from a self-tapping screw to a pop rivet. So I've, you know, that was almost 30 years ago. But my point is we as, as employers need to be able to ask the right questions to ascertain, hey, what are we really getting in this uh, young person right out of school and how much is experience-based and how much is education-based and, and what's the value of the whole package? Because it's, it's you know, it's incumbent upon us to, to know also. I agree. You know what came to mind, Mark? Um, you, you told me this story, I think, right? About you driving your car to a job interview. And uh, oh, yeah. I don't know. So, it might fit in pretty yeah, good to this, this is a conversation. Funny story. Okay. Yeah. So here's, here's Mark. I'm going to Clarkson. I have an interview in Auburn, New York at Alco Power. So I had an old Ford at that time. So I'm in a, I don't know, had a lot of miles on it. And the interview uh, was before Christmas, so it's cold. So I'm coming down Route 81, and the transmission starts slipping. I thought, doggone it. I, I hope I can make it there. So I make it to the Holiday Inn. I get on the phone with the transmission company, and I said, uh, I need a transmission for this model car uh, delivered to the Holiday Inn tomorrow. <laughs> he said, uh, you don't want us to put it in? I said, I don't have the money for that. I can only afford to buy a transmission. I'll have the other one out. You can take it with you. So I, I take a cab to the interview the next day. And I had uh, already loosened up the transmission, gotten it ready to come out. I go to get the uh, to the interview the next day and meet with the guy. And uh, great interview and takes me through the whole plant. And then, uh, well, you want to have dinner tonight? I said, no, I have plans. He said, oh. I said, I'm changing the transmission in my car. He said, what? I said, I told him the whole story. He said, if you get that transmission changed tomorrow, you come over here and I will give you a job offer. I said, okay. I said, you can count on it because I don't have any other way to get back to school. So <laughs> I pull the transmission out. The transmission company drops off the new one. I put it all in. Now, this is, I was young. Right, so at that point I was uh, I was had just turned uh, twenty, so you could at that point still press a transmission up into place and hold up the tailpiece with your knees and slide it forward and bolt it up. So I did all that, fired it up over the Alco. I went and uh, he said, "Sure enough, I figured you were going to be here." 
<laughs> and then gave me a job offer, which I didn't accept, by the way. But it was uh, it was still an interesting story. And if a young person did that nowadays, I would give him a job offer as well. Yeah, that's a great story. Cracked me up when he told me that. Thought it was podcast worthy, Mark. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> well, guys, we covered a lot. Is there anything else we want to talk about? I would just tell your listeners, you know, make friends with a local engineering professor it's a it's a really good way to to get to, to open up the lines of communication yeah. what your industry needs and you know it sort of a it's a pain in the neck to take time out of your busy schedule to do but i think it pays it pays itself forward with you know now now you have a open line of communication to figure out what students are interested in internships and things like that the faculty at these schools you know, we, we really want to, to help the engaged students right. find opportunities. So, Well, and I, I think even as students are in school, you know, there's a tendency to think, you know, the professors are, they're the guys that arbitrate what your grade will be or the, the people that arbitrate what your grade will be. But it's still uh, worthwhile. Your professors are there not because it's their road to becoming independently wealthy they're there by and large because they're they're they want to inspire you they want to help you succeed so it's a it's you know it's not because they want to see you fail so engage with them while you're there because even once you graduate there may come a time when you need to reconnect or you want to reconnect just to you know say hello and or hey i have a specific problem can you guide me to some resources and I know I did that, but that was before the days of the internet. So, you know, you had to think outside the box in terms of where I can get information from. That's true. You know, it's great though. Is when you reconnect with students and see a degree of success that they've achieved, that is the reward from the job. I'm not so burned out at this point. I couldn't go find myself a better paying job. I'm there to, I'm there because I really enjoy engineering content. I love, I love going in and think of a new way to present a topic and yeah, I have fun with it. So, you know, it's, that's, that's why I, that's why I stuck with it. But Oh, there's a lot of, a huge amount of value in that. I mean, yeah, as a professor, I guess you could probably teach really well when you're very passionate about it, which the majority I can imagine are. So yeah, there's some few bad eggs out there. <laughs> like anything. You don't really get, <laughs> You know, you don't really get to be yourself in front of the students, right? Because yeah, the bad eggs will. The bad eggs are professors, and there's bad eggs that are students. Yep. But they're few and far between. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that they they always they have the loudest voices. So you got to be right. kind of particular. But yep. Um, you know, it's uh, yeah, it, like like Mark said, I, I rarely meet a, a faculty member that isn't there just because they love. They love teaching their subjects. So. Yep. Awesome, guys. Well, thanks a lot for your time. John, thank you so much. That was a blast. I love talking about this stuff anytime. Thanks a lot, um, Mark and John, for your input on education. I think it was a, a really great conversation. I, we covered a lot. Hopefully, you guys as listeners, if you're on either end of the spectrum, um, learned something, got a little, little bit of insight on the other end. And yeah, I just hope it was a really interesting podcast. So thanks for tuning in. Our next episode, we will be discussing boilers. So we're going to kind of phase back into our previous trend of mechanical equipment. We just 
we wanted to bring John on for this conversation. And I think it was just a great podcast. So thank you guys. And thank you very much to our listeners. Have a great day.